the radical left, the Marxists, the anarchists, the agitators, the looters, and people who, in many instances, have absolutely no clue what they are doing. Welcome to What Radicalized You, a podcast of stories and experiences that have shaped people's ideas about our world and the way society should function. The following episode contains a content warning for mentions of sexual abuse and suicidal feelings. Listener discretion is advised. My name is Mel. I use she, her pronouns. I'm what I suppose would be called a mental health advocate. I have had and have many disabilities slash mental illnesses throughout my life. But um, when talking about topics like ableism, the mental health care system, and mental health in general, I tend to focus on my lived experience as someone with a psychotic disorder. There were probably several specific life instances that radicalized me, but overall it was a pretty gradual process. Growing up as a white person from a pretty financially secure household, there was many things that I didn't need to experience and that I was shielded from because of my privilege and that I had to unlearn and continue to unlearn. But my experience with ableism was something that I was very acutely aware of, even growing up when I was a young child. I didn't always have the language to describe it, but it was something that I remember feeling ashamed of, you know, before I even knew what a disability was. When I was eight, I was diagnosed with OCD, and I remember being so embarrassed that I was going to therapy because there was another person in my class who was going to therapy and people made fun of him in the class. I had been diagnosed with Tourette's around the same time, and I remember being bullied for the tics that I had. So even those like small instances, I think were really foundational for how I viewed myself and also just how I viewed disability in general. Throughout middle and high school, I had chronic pain that I tried treating for years, but whenever I would go to a hospital or like a doctor's office, I would be told to just change my diet or, you know, get more exercise. So those messages really, I really internalized that. You know, that was ableism that wasn't just coming from like my young peers, but was coming from authority figures and that people I was told that I should be trusting and that I should be looking to for help who were actually not really helping me. Something that I also experienced in high school when I was pretty young was sexual abuse and emotional abuse from a partner who I was with for about a year. You know, very similar to my experience with disability, The sexual abuse I felt very ashamed of, and I felt like I had to keep that to myself in order to not make the people around me uncomfortable. You know, I didn't feel like I really got the support that I needed after I finally was able to leave that relationship, which was very risky and very scary for me. So again, it was more things that I was 
feeling ashamed about, more things that I was keeping to myself. Some of my early delusional thoughts sort of started happening after that. And, you know, I wasn't in the habit of sharing things, and I was very distressed by these thoughts, so I kept it to myself. I thought that if I just went away, um, then the problems would go away with me, so I moved out to the Midwest for college. But, you know, obviously trauma and mental illness doesn't really work that way. So my second year of college, I had my first diagnosed psychotic episode. That was when I really became acutely aware that when people reach out for help, they don't always receive that help. I think sometimes we think that the right thing to do is to tell people, oh, just reach out for help, just, you know, share your story, you'll be heard. And, you know, ideally people really should reach out for help, but if we're telling people to reach out for help, we need to make sure that they're receiving that help because Many people are not met with help, and in fact, they're met with the opposite. They're met with police intervention, or they're involuntarily held in a psychiatric unit, which can be an extremely traumatic experience. And especially since so many people like myself who go through these episodes of very intense mental distress are trauma survivors, to continue to take that agency away from that person, to continue to put them in a vulnerable position where you're telling them, reach out for help, everything will be fine if you reach out, and then not providing that is something that we really significantly need to analyze when we're talking about mental health and the mental health care system. Before my first diagnosed psychotic episode, I had already been dealing with paranoia and suicidal ideation for several years. But that was the first time where things really reached a crisis point and I ended up in the ER. At the time, I believed that I had kind of a supernatural-like ability to make bad things happen and that the only way that I could protect the people around me was to kill myself. My mom, she knew something was wrong, so the first day that I came home for spring break, she took me to the ER. And I remember sitting in the waiting room for maybe like six or seven hours and when the psychiatrist finally talked to me, I opened up about why I was so worried. And that was the first time that I really talked about the paranoid and delusional thoughts I was having because I truly believed that, you know, they were real and that I would suffer some horrific consequences if I let anybody know about them. And I remember very clearly her response was that, she couldn't help me if I refused to make sense. She was just sort of irritated at the way I was trying to describe myself. And I ended up being dismissed from the hospital that night. You know, now having more experience with the mental health care system, I see that there really wasn't any good option. I was either going to be dismissed or committed. And both, you know, in hindsight, feel more like punishments than ways of supporting and caring for someone in distress. I remember later, I was in an outpatient program, and those flaws, those intrinsic flaws, became much more prevalent there as well. I remember there was a rule in the outpatient program that I was in 
where basically people would come and they would spend the entire day there. So it was sort of like a nine to five job, but then they would leave at night. And if you didn't get there in the morning, they told you you had to sign something that said you agreed to this, that they would call the police if you were 10 minutes late. And <laughs> to a group of people who are mentally ill, that is an extremely dangerous thing to do, especially for the people who were black or people of color in that group who were vocal about how dangerous and how unsettling that was and how that was something that we had to agree to in order to be in that program is very distressing to think about. And even though we were all voicing how uncomfortable we were with this policy, absolutely no one took us seriously. Many of the people who said, I'm not okay with this, were sort of shrugged off as like, oh, well, you don't know what's best for you. So that, that kind of experience, I think, was also impactful for me because that was the first time I was around other mentally ill people who were like, wait, no, that's not okay. And I think it, it sort of dawned on me that the healthcare systems that we are supposed to put our faith into are not prioritizing people with lived experience. They're not prioritizing the well-being of the people actually using those services. In this outpatient program, we weren't allowed to engage with each other outside of the program, collect each other's contact information, or even give each other a hug or like a pat on the shoulder without fear of being kicked out of that program. I know that there are, you know, various reasons for this, but from my perspective as a service user, it felt really counterproductive to my healing. I got so much more out of the connections that I made with the peers in that program than I did with the actual program itself. And, you know, back then I didn't know about, you know, concepts like peer support or interdependent relationships. But in hindsight, that really stands out to me as an example of how healing relationships amongst disabled, mad, and mentally ill people can really be, and how discouraging it is to see those relationships often only characterized as being unhealthy. When I started to become more involved with mental health advocacy, I saw that a lot of the large nonprofits, from my perspective, really focused more on like awareness campaigns and interpersonal ways of supporting people than these larger issues facing the mentally ill community. Criminalization, systemic issues within the mental health care system, and the overall way we treat crisis response. Personally, I tend to see a distinct difference between the way that organizations that center mad, mentally ill, and disabled people are versus organizations that seem to be more patronizing and talking for people rather than with them. People who do speak out about these systemic issues are often, you know, criticized and accused of making people not want to reach out for help. And the thing is, is that we can't continue to pretend that involuntarily committing someone is help. We can't continue to pretend that police intervention is help. I think that really comes down to the fact that people aren't prioritizing lived experience. 
there's a misconception, you know, that I've experienced as someone with a psychotic disorder that people with these, like, quote-unquote serious mental illnesses are incapable of knowing what's best for them and therefore, you know, you shouldn't even try. You should always act on their behalf because a family member or a medical professional will know what's best. And that in no way should be acceptable. We should not be revoking someone's right to comfort and consent because we have an ableist idea that those people should not have agency over their own lives. Another criticism people have sometimes when people talk about these systemic issues is that, well, I had a great experience. I never had a problem finding a therapist. I went to an inpatient facility and my experience was fine, so I don't know what anyone's complaining about. And in many ways, people are shielded from experiencing some of these issues firsthand because of maybe a privileged identity that they have or because they just happen to have an anecdotal experience that is more positive. But when you look at the scale of people who, specifically people who are coming from marginalized positions, who are coming from backgrounds where they don't have access to the same mental health resources, coming from situations where they did not volunteer to be medicated or to be participating in a certain type of mental health treatment. We see that these issues are not interpersonal at all. I mean, we know that the mental health care system in psychiatry is based off of eugenicist practices. We know this, but we're not going to the root of the issue and trying to radicalize the system and recreate the system from the ground up. And we're not saying like, oh, you know, no one should seek treatment or, oh, no one should use medication if medication's helpful for them or all therapists are bad people. That's not what I'm saying. That's not what most people I know are saying. But we are saying that even the best therapists, even like the best, most positive anecdotal experience does not discount the fact that these systemic issues still exist. Even the most helpful therapist that I have had is still existing in a structure where I could only see her if I had the money to afford to see her, if I had the insurance if I was considered well enough, because so often people with serious mental illnesses are not provided community-based care, but instead are referred to hospital programs because their cases are seen as like too severe and they're essentially seen as liabilities. For people who are advocates and do want to learn from lived experience, I also encourage them to make sure that they're meeting people where they are, and understanding that while we should be listening and learning from lived experience, we cannot demand that people with lived experience put themselves in an unsafe position where they are sharing more than they are comfortable sharing. Because that's going to vary from person to person. And I think a lot of, you know, anti-stigma awareness campaigns might say, you have to share everything, you have to, you know, break the stigma, you have to do it all yourself. But until we can create 
a society that is actually safe for mentally ill people, specifically black mentally ill people, mentally ill people of color, then we cannot demand that people educate us. We need to create a society that is safe for people to not only share their lived experience, but to just live their lives simply, you know? To be able to seek care without being worried that their consent is going to be violated. To be able to, you know, ask for accommodations at work without being scared that their job will be in jeopardy. The people in positions of power, people who are working within these institutions, you know, if this is not a criticism on individuals, but I do think as individuals, everybody needs to be aware of this and mindful of this when they are providing services to people seeking that type of care.